0: Uh, wonderful hurricaney morning. Uh, Forefront, good morning. We have to stop meeting like this, but you know what they say when life gives you a hurricane, you make lemonade. So um, I am, uh, as Max said, Deacon Jim, um, and I want to tell you a little bit about myself, um, uh, answering first the meet and greet question. When I was a kid, my favorite fairy tale was Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And specifically, there was a version from this VHS tape collection called My Favorite Fairy Tales from 1986. If you actually go on YouTube and type in My Favorite Fairy Tales, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, you will be able to watch the version that I'm specifically talking about that I watched obsessively as a child. And if you're not familiar with the fairy tale, I'll give you kind of the rundown of the general story beats for you. Um there's a very poor woodcutter by the name of Alibaba who discovers that nearby there's a cave where thieves are kind of keeping their loot. He discovers that they have a magic password, open sesame and close sesame to get in and get out. So after they leave, he sneaks in and he steals some of their treasure, but a modest amount of treasure just enough to lift him out of poverty and to get him into a place of comfort. Now, he's got this greedy older brother named Kasim who discovers what Alibaba has been up to, so he goes to the cave himself, and in his sheer joy at being elated at the sheer amount of treasure, packs up so much that not only can he barely move, but he can't remember the password to get out. So he is discovered there by the thieves, and he is ultimately punished for his thievery. But they also want to punish Alibaba for his thievery, so they develop this nefarious plan to get back at him that is ultimately discovered and foiled by a servant girl named Morgiana. And Alibaba is so elated at how things have transpired that he throws a party, he he divides the treasure amongst the town to celebrate, and everyone lives happily ever after, especially Morgiana, who attracts the eye of a local townsman who marries her. So, of course, as the most important part with fairy tales, everyone lives happily ever after, right? And now when I was a kid, I loved this story so much because the morals were actually very pretty simple to convey. If you're humble, you're going to be rewarded. And if you are greedy, you are going to be punished. As the narrator says at the end of the story, what goes around comes around, right? But as I got a little bit older, I started kind of questioning that and wondering, do these morals actually sync up with what we've discovered in our lived experience? Or were we told that this is what life would be like or should be like? Because as I got older, I realized that the humble people don't always get paid off, and the greedy people sometimes get away scot-free. And so there are a little bit of discrepancies that if you actually go back and look at the original text of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, you'll see that it's not quite a, as simple of a moral tale as you can imagine. So, for instance, Kasim is not just punished by the thieves, but his body is actually cut into different pieces. And because the family has to kind of pretend that things are okay so they don't give up the ghost, they sew his body back together kind of weekend at Bernie's style. Um, Morgiana is also not just a servant. She's actually a slave. And she's rewarded for her part in foiling this this nefarious plot by being allowed to marry Alibaba's son. She finds vindication and completion... Through a relationship in a patriarchal structure. And Alibaba doesn't divide the treasure amongst the town folks. He doesn't keep it for himself, but he does keep the secret on how to get in and out of the cave. And he is the only one that knows how that happens. So, with that kind of recontextualizing in mind, I, I, I challenge you to think about the fairy tale that you gave the answer to, of what your favorite one is, and, and think about what version you're thinking about. Are you thinking about the original version? Are you thinking about the Disney version? Are you thinking about a version which was told through another lens, another perspective, translated from another language? So, for instance, maybe you're thinking about Little Red Riding Hood. And if you're familiar with Little Red Riding Hood, chances are you're probably familiar with the Brothers Grimm version of it, in which Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother are gobbled up by a wolf and ultimately saved by a huntsman who allows them to enact revenge on this wolf and set up a trap for another wolf later on. And the moral with that one is pretty clear. This innocent young girl who did not heed the signs the, of danger that was coming up is punished for it. And she is ultimately saved by a big burly man that comes along and corrects the situation later. But if you actually look back at the original version of Little Red Riding Hood from 1697, there's a few changes. For instance, Little Red Riding Hood isn't so little. She's actually a grown woman. And when she gets to the house, she willingly strips naked, gets into the bed with the wolf, and is eaten. End of story. That's it. There's no rescue, there's no redemption, there's no rescue, reconciliation, there's no huntsman. And people actually kind of consider this story to be a, a strange tale of female empowerment. So, for instance, um, it, there's a contemporary French idiom for a girl having lost her virginity, which is Elle voit vous le loup. She has seen the wolf. Maybe you're thinking of The Little Mermaid, and if you are, chances are you're probably thinking of the Disney version, right? You know, where Ariel sells her voice so that she can become a human for a few days, and she ultimately wins over Prince Eric, and they fall in love and live happily ever after. But if you go back to the original Hans Christian Andersen version, once she turns into a human, every step that she takes is physical agony. But because she can't sing, she has to dance for the prince and subjects herself to this physical misery. And the prince ultimately ends up choosing someone else instead. And so because she's so overcome with rage, her sisters encourage her to kill the prince because they say his blood on her feet will restore her fins. But she's so in love with the prince, she can't bring herself to do it. So she ultimately dies, dissolves into foam, and is washed away by the ocean. I should also say, if you have any children watching this, I am so sorry, kids. (laughs) But... I'm hoping that you can imagine with this recontextualization, if you can think and kind of see how writers over time can take these written and oral traditions and kind of sand down the sides and kind of reduce them to these simple moralistic tales. Can you imagine how people can do that with these written and oral traditions of Bible stories that have been passed down over time, especially when we consider who are the ones that have been collating and conveying these Bible stories to us? Powerful men, right? That's been the case throughout history. So I'd also challenge you to think now, where else have you been, have you seen the meaning or the lessons of, of a moral of a Bible story change from what you were told as a child to what you have discovered as you have grown up and lived your life? For me, top of mind is uh, the story of Job, the book of Jobers. I like to call it the fairy tale of Job. Job to me is a strange and fascinating book, uh, considering how unique it is and how unlike it, it is anything that came before it or anything that comes after it. What came before it in the Bible are the historical books, are these um, stories that kind of lay out the history and development of Israel as a monarchical nation, a nation that forms its own identity primarily through military conquest as justified by a powerful God, right? And then what comes after the book of Job are the poetical or wisdom books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, these ones where the focus really shifts from an external, a nation's external relationship with God to a more personal, intimate, internal relationship with God and with people. Because listen, if anyone tells you that Song of Solomon is about a guy's relationship with God, they are lying to you. There is no way that anyone talks about the breasts and neck of God like that. That's between a man and a woman. I promise you that, people. But so sandwiched in between, we have this book of Job in which there is this individual person who is has these internal musings about his suffering and very much has an external relationship with an all-powerful God. It's very unique. And so let's go back and kind of look at how the book of Job is kind of set up. It very much starts out with a fairy tale you have right in the opening chapter. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And even if you just look at that opening sentence, there once was a man, that's so close to once upon a time, right? It's so very close. But it's believed that the land of Uz was located in the kingdom of Edom, which in its early history was a nomadic kingdom or made up of nomadic tribes. So you have this guy named Job who has all these heirs, who has all these possessions, who has all this livestock. This guy is going to be a pretty big deal in this story, in this society. So you have this very wealthy guy who's in this uh, ancient far-off kingdom a long time ago, and you have this god who's chilling up in his cloud one day when this happens. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. After this exchange, you basically have a bet that God makes with Satan, I bet you that no matter what happens, my servant Job will not turn away from me, in which immense suffering is heaped upon Job, he gets boils, his his livestock is destroyed, his property is destroyed, his heirs die, he laments these things that happen to him, then you have these three cycles in which he says, this doesn't make any sense, and his friends say, well, actually, it does make sense, here's why it's happening to you, he then rebukes his friends, We have some poetical musings on suffering and on wisdom. God comes down to give two very long monologues before he ultimately goes back up to his cloud. Job is restored to his previous glory, and they live happily ever after, right? Mm -hmm. But being taught this story as a child, and I was taught this story many times as a child, both in church and in my Christian school education, I was told that there was a very simplistic moral lesson to be derived from the suffering of Job. Do not question God through the trials and tribulations because there's a reason for everything and your steadfast faithfulness and patience will be rewarded in the end. But does that lesson really sync up with what we've discovered in our lived experience or were we told that this is what life should look like by certain people? Because if we look closer at the context of both the culture in which the book of Job is kind of written and evolved from and even just the language that was used to write it, we see that that lesson is far too simple. It's an easy to digest Disney version of a much richer, more nuanced, more morally complex text. And there's a few entry points that we can kind of get into to sort of deconstruct this simplistic myth that has been told to us, beginning with the the culture and basically um, the culture that Job was born into and the lens through which we should see this story. We're told that Job was feared by God. And once again, if you are remembering that what came before are the historical books, these ones where they very much had a focus on Israel as a nation and the development and the power of the Israelite people, this kind of codifies Job to be an Israelite or at the very least one who is an insider with God. And one thing and a couple things that we should keep in mind as we're reading this this story through this context in this white evangelical American society is we are very pro-Israel, and we are very skeptical of outsiders, but I've got some news for you folks. Job was not an Israelite. Now, it's speculated that that Uz was located in the kingdom of Edom. Edom had a, a tumultuous relationship with Israelites in the Bible, specifically the kingdom of Judah, the southernmost um, uh, tribe of Israel, in which there were very, in which there were quite a few military conflicts, specifically. Edomites were considered to be the descendants of Esau rather than the descendants of Jacob. And if you remember your Old Testament genealogy, what came from Jacob? Well, the 12 tribes came from Jacob, which begot King David, that ultimately begot Jesus Christ, our personal savior, right? What came from Esau? Well, King Herod, that tried to kill. Jesus at one point. So you can see how there's sort of this divide that is cast between these two societies. And even in our Bible context, as I said, King Saul and King David specifically had quite a few military conquests in which they defeated the Edomites. And also historically, um, later the, the Edomites would actually align themselves with Nebuchadnezzar when, they, when Nebuchadnezzar arrived in Jerusalem to destroy the temple and exile the Israelites. So you kind of see how not only is Job not part of Israel, but Job is part of a society in which Israel could actually kind of look down and skeptically on the society. And even the way the book is written, the book's style and message do not conform with what came before it, and once again, what came after it. And from the NRSV translation of the Bible from the New Oxford Annotated Bible, there are two thoughts that I find interesting. One that says, although the book of Job in its entirety is unique in ancient literature, it draws on a variety of traditions and genres that were known through the ancient Near East, especially in the poetic dialogues. Later on, when God is giving his monologues, he actually references the, the, the mythological beast Leviathan. And Leviathan does not come from Jewish mythology, from Christian mythology. Leviathan comes from a pre-biblical Mesopotamian mythological sea serpent. It, it embodies the form of chaos that kind of existed before God created the heavens and the earth. This is, this is an example of a nation or a powerful force kind of reappropriating someone else's culture and stories into the story of them as a nation. Again, this the, the Bible says, the problem of enigmatic suffering was one that was explored in Mesopotamian literature in poetic compositions in which a righteous or emblematic sufferer describes his suffering, his confusion about the cause of his misery, and his passionate desire for restoration. There is a certainty that came before the book of Job, and this is what God is, and this is what our relationship with God looks like. And suddenly there is this enigmatic musing on suffering that comes in, once again, coming from this specific culture. Because this story is being told through the lens of a person in a conquered nation whose culture and practices differ greatly from the nation that conquered it. Imagine you're living your life and you have your beliefs, you have your way of living, you have everything that, that has informed your day-to-day, and you are conquered by an outside nation that then tells you this is now what you believe in, this is now what's important to you, this is now you are part of our story. How do you reconcile the chaos that results from this conflict between what you've lived and what you're now being told. Can you see how this existential problem of suffering could result from that? Another point that we can kind of use to deconstruct the simplistic moral story is this idea of, of Job being a patient person. I'm, uh, perhaps we've all heard the, the 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 idea of the patience of Job, you know? But the Greek term that is translated into patience doesn't actually mean Patience, So much as it means endurance or persistence. And actually, if you look at the character of Job, he is not so much a patient guy as much as he persistently claims that he is suffering undeservedly. I mean, if you actually look at the story, does Job take everything gracefully and accept his fate? No, he's pissed. He argues, he complains, he says this isn't fair. He pushes back against the theological orthodoxy that is embodied in his three friends that tell him this is how things are and this is what you need to respond to. And he refuses to accept that. Job 3, 1 through 4. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Job 16, 16 through 17, my face is red with weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids, though there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. We have these two thoughts here. One saying these horrible things are happening to me and I curse the day that I was born. And another saying like, despite the fact I did nothing wrong, this is not fair. The protagonist of this story can't reconcile what he has done with what is happening to him and the reasons he's told that they're happening to him. How many of us can relate to that situation? I've done everything that I did. I lived a right. I don't know why my dad got sick. You know, I, I've been a hard worker all my life. I don't know why I can't find a job. This isn't fair. How many of us can relate to that and can relate to the frustration when people tell us, well, here's the thing, everything happens for a reason. Y'all, if someone is grieving and suffering and you tell them everything is happening for a reason, stop, walk away. That is not helpful. The third point that we can kind of get into to sort of deconstruct this myth of this simple moral tale is that the God in this story is not a God worthy of praise or thanks, especially when he demands that we do not question him. Think of that that sentence, have you considered my servant Job? There's a real arrogance in that question, right? I mean, Job at some point eventually gets to a point where he demands a confrontation with God. He demands answers. He demands reconciliation. And God comes down and gives these two lengthy monologues in which he addresses nothing that Job said. Instead, we get this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. (laughs) Real toxic masculine, God. I will question you and you shall declare to me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. And when I first read that verse, those last three words, surely you know, kind of, I initially read it as like, you know, of course you shouldn't question this because of how powerful I am. But rereading it again, I see it more as a sarcastic, like, well, surely you know, you guy who complains and says that he knows everything. Surely you have this understanding. What an arrogant jerk this God is, Right. Once again, the NRSV translation of the New Oxford Annotated Bible has these things to say. In these final two monologues, God's speeches neither explain Job's suffering, nor defend divine justice, nor enter into the courtroom confrontation that Job has demanded, nor respond to his oath of innocence. The meaning and significance of the divine speeches continue to be among the most debated issues in the book. All agree that the extraordinary beauty of the poetry is part of its meaning." So what we have here is this point that the motivations of the God in this story are never explained, depriving us of a simple, easily conveyed lesson in morality. This is hardly a happily ever after morality tale. And yet we have that thought at the end, all agree that the extraordinary beauty of the poetry is part of its meaning, the, the extrapolation of it, the engaging with it, just the journey itself, there's part of the beauty of it. And y'all, to me, this is good news. And that may sound weird. Why is this good news? Why should you be happy that I'm telling you that interpreting Job is not such a simple task, and that we shouldn't believe in a simple, easily conveyed lesson of morality? And why does that make me happy? Well, it makes me happy because the more that you dig into this, the context and subtleties of Job, the more you'll see that its very nature, its very existence as a book, as a piece of literature, defies easy morality and is inherently antithetical. To the wielding of the cudgel that so many powerful forces, and historically mostly the white evangelical church, have used in an effort to beat us into submission and conformity. That cudgel is certainty. Because when we look back historically, what is certainty in a biblical context that people have told us other than inflexibility? Other than do not question, do not doubt, do this, do that, this is why things are happening to you, this is what makes you a sinner and unworthy. Job is a book that provides us with a character who not only can't understand what's happening to him and why it's happening to him, but who also never comes to understand, yet he chooses to live out his life the best he can anyway. Because there is clearly no delineated cause and effect between what is happening to Job or what what Job does or what he doesn't do and what happens to him, the story implies that uncertainty and inf- and affliction are in no way results of your failures, your actions, or your shortcomings as a human being. Job tells us that it's okay to be uncertain, that being uncertain is a natural part of our experience when dealing with faith in a God that is responsible for a complex and often problematic creation, and that uncertainty is an experience older even than the Bible itself. This idea of certainty and how things are and how they should be, that is a modern-day invention of people in power, y'all. Uncertainty and grappling with text has always been a part of the human experience, especially when it comes to our trying to make sense of our relationship as humans and our relationship with God. Those that have told us that we have to be certain of things that the Bible has said are doing so because it supports their narrative of what they want the Bible to say rather than how the Bible reads. And y'all, it's very important to know those are two very different points, what the Bible says and how the Bible reads. Because what has certainty gotten us about the Bible in the past Certainty in what the Bible says has fueled three decrees from Pope uh, Alexander VI in 1493 that donated land in Africa, Central, and South America to the kings of Spain and Portugal, despite the fact that indigenous people had already lived there for generations. And the church called that the doctrine of discovery. Certainty in what the Bible says meant that when America's founding fathers referred to all those equally created men, they only meant white landowning men specifically the church called that the Declaration of Independence. Certainty in what the Bible says has justified the genocide of America's indigenous population during the terms of both Andrew Jackson and the so-called great emancipator Abraham Lincoln as the American empire expanded westward. And they called that Manifest Destiny. Certainty in what the Bible says means that to this very day, all across the country, parents are disowning their kids and churches are not allowing them to enter or serve because of their sexuality, and they call that the word of God. Certainty has gotten to a point where it is coveted above truth and reality, and this has led to violence, this has led to oppression, to conspiracies, this leads to QAnon, let's be honest with ourselves, everyone. I'm done with certainty in what people tell me about the Bible. Whereas uncertainty in what the Bible says means that we question the morals and lessons that have been told to us by powerful forces and that we rediscover God's will for our lives as well as our will for our lives. And I believe that God calls that good. Back in the book of Genesis, after God has created the creation, God called it good. And there is a Hebrew word that that means and it is it is Tov, T-O-V. Tov doesn't mean good morally or spiritually. Tov, the context in which, it, in which it comes from means it is as it was always meant to be. Y'all, this questioning, this, re, this recontextualization, this grappling, this struggling, that is good. That is how it was meant to be for us always. I'm skeptical of anyone who tells me this is absolutely the way it is and condemns me for questioning that. And the story of Job says, you know what? And for good cause. The story of Job reminds us that there is chaos in the world, that tragedy coexists with beauty, and that not everything happens for a reason. Sometimes things just happen operating completely removed from anything morally or spiritually having to do with it. And while the book of Job doesn't really answer the question of why bad things happen to good people, it's pretty clear in giving to us that it is not because of who you are or what you've done. Nothing that happens to you, it happens because you have done the wrong thing, because you are the wrong person. Sometimes these things just happen, completely removed from who you are or what you've been going through. It is also very clear to me that the existence of tragedy does not, cannot, and should not preclude the existence of blessings and beauty. Why, morally or spiritually, does Job get his happily ever after? I don't know. I don't think the writers know either. But he did. Does the why really matter as much as what he did with what he was living through? The Bible, I'll admit, is not always easy to understand despite what we have been told. But here at Forefront, we continuously say that we take the Bible too seriously to take it literally. And I love that as a church, we reevaluate, we recontextualize, we question and we challenge. For many of us, it has been a long journey moving out of a certainty that has boxed us in, that has limited us, that has defined us into being comfortable with uncertainty, with changing our perspective on the Bible from one being an infallible text to that of being a useful collection of history, wisdom, and morality that waxes and wanes as we, like the tribes of Israel, make sense of our reality and our relationship with a God who is outside of finite understanding. The Bible evolves along with us. It takes on new form and understanding as we progress as humans. But it's also comforting to know that a text that is so old, that has been kind of so ubiquitous, there are universal truths that have always connected us and humanized us, such as the truth that we find in Job about questioning the narrative of a certainty that conquerors have brought along with them, that powerful forces have tried to enforce on us. We are not defined by our actions. We are not defined by what we believe or by what happens to us, or even by the stories that people tell us about ourselves. We are defined by how we choose to react, how we choose to live through the highs and the lows. Now, I'm sitting here telling this sermon from my apartment in Manhattan, which means my wife is here with me watching the service as well. And y'all, we have been through our own trials and tribulations. We were supposed to get married March 22nd, 2020. But of course, by the time that day came around, not only had we already postponed our wedding celebration due to the COVID outbreak, but we had already been married for five days. Because when we were sitting on our couch on the afternoon of March 17th, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio came on and said, there's a shelter in place order coming. And we knew that we had only a limited amount of time to utilize our wedding license. And also we had no idea when we would get the next one. So we looked at ourselves and we said, we have to get married today. So we threw together witnesses, we threw together outfits, we threw together a wedding in three hours and got married in Fort Tryon Park, overlooking the Hudson River and the George Washington Bridge. And it was a wonderful experience. But ever since then, y'all, you know, we are rational, intelligent people. And ever since then, we've been looking for something, some person, some entity, some force to kind of give us a certainty as to what is going to happen for a family in the future. What's going to happen with COVID? What's going to happen with work? What's going to happen with the housing market? What is going to happen? And not having the answers to that has been incredibly difficult. But we move forward. Not because we know what's going to happen with those things, but because we recognize that our perseverance in the face of this uncertainty is its own fairy tale. I would like to close uh, with a quote from a book that has helped me a lot in my journey with uncertainty from a great uh, speaker and theologian, a guy by the name of Pete Enns, who I had the fortune of interviewing uh, for the Forefront podcast um, sometime last year. And just to show you that I'm not the only crazy person who is thinking about this sort of stuff, it comes from his book that he calls The Sin of Certainty. I've learned to accept this paradox, a holy book that more often than not doesn't act very much like you'd expect it, but more like a book written 2,000 to 3,000 years ago would act. I expect the Bible to reflect fully the ancient settings in which it was written, and therefore not act as a script that can simply be dropped into our lives without a lot of thought and wisdom. The Bible must be thought through, pondered, tried out, assessed, and if need be argued with, all of which is an expression of faith, not evidence to the contrary. Looking back on these things, going through this journey, and uh, just kind of recontextualizing this in my journey, I look back at that question, have you considered my servant Job? And I've recontextualized. I've changed it. It it, no longer to me. I don't want it to be an, an arrogant question, but a question instead of pride. Have you considered my servant Job means have you considered who my servant is? Have you considered what they've been through? Have you considered what they can bring to this creation that I have made? And so that question of have you considered my servant Job can be turned to you, all of us. Have you considered my servant Mackenzie? Have you considered my servant Angela? Have you considered my servant Sam, my servant Jill, my servant Megan? Have you considered my servant you? And if you can discover that goodness in yourself as you are, if you can reject this narrative of what people tell you about yourselves and what you should believe in, then you are the blessing, you are the miracle, and you are the fairy tale that is worth telling. Would you all pray with me now? Lord, I thank you for this team, this church, for our ability to react, to move forward in the face of uncertainty, to to put together this service, to deliver the word to people out there who are hungry for it. I thank you, Lord, for the strength to move forward when we don't know what we're moving into. And I pray, Lord, that for those who are struggling, that you would provide them strength, you would provide them faith, you would provide them the knowledge in that there are people who are there with them, who care about them, including you are there with them and caring about them as well. Thank you, Lord, for the creation that we have, as problematic as it can sometimes be. I thank you that there is beauty and that it is not counteracted by tragedy. Be with us, Lord, as we move through the rest of the week, as we move through the rest of this month, as we move forward into uncertainty, and when we may we feel your presence there pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.